from New York City. Welcome to Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. On this podcast, we discuss issues near and far from personal finance. You can always reach me directly with questions or comments at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or 212-969-6655. Well, it's the start of the year, and as always, we do a kickoff podcast, and I bring in client advisor Amanda Beebe to ask questions and see what's on the minds of investors out there. Amanda, thanks for joining. Thank you for having me back, Mark. So as I've done in the past, we do this start of the year, mid-year. I toss the proverbial baton to you and say, fire away. Let's see what's on people's minds. And hopefully I can say something insightful and or witty to uh, inform and or entertain. Love the confidence. All right, let's do this. Before we start with 2020, let's take a step back and look at 2019. What surprised you? What didn't? What are your thoughts? So I think the first thing that has to surprise any investor is that the U.S. market was up roughly 30%. Foreign markets were also up in the 20s, and I don't think anyone thought on January 1st of 2020 that that was the type of market environment we'd be looking at. Now, I said this mid-year, and I I do this every time we do these podcasts where I try and focus on the six months or year that was and what the next six months or year will be. I do this weird thing, and I I re-listen to what I had previously said And if you listen back to an episode from a year ago about what we thought would happen in 2019, you have to remember that we were coming off a terrible fourth quarter in 2018. So why is that important? Because at that point in time, we thought markets were oversold. And my opinion was that you should expect some type of snapback in the market if for nothing, no other reason than stocks were too darn cheap. Now, did I think they'd be up 30%? No. Did anyone? No. But, but one of the things we said is that in, in the environment where things were highly uncertain, whether it was because of trade or Brexit, U.S., China, the economy, in an uncertain world, uncertainty can mean up, uncertainty to the downside, which I think is what everyone always worried about, or uncertainty to the upside. And we talked about having the right amount of risk for you, given that either of those two things could happen. So I think 2019 was an environment for more of a I don't know, quote unquote, black swan event where the unexpected would happen. And, and so I said that, but I wouldn't have said it will end up being up 30%. I would have said it, it could be up 30%. That doesn't sound all that insightful, but I thought the year was lined up because you had a lot of big issues that could go good. And they did. And that that broke up to the upside. Let's talk a little bit more about those issues, both positive and negative. All right, so I think the the first one that's on people's minds or maybe the two that spurred what happened last year are a combination of Fed policy and trade. And so it's clear that over the last year, and I think this will be true for 2020, the things that are going to drive the market day to day are going to be these big geopolitical issues. And, And I know you don't typically think about the Fed as a geopolitical issue. It's not, but let's just call that a large macro issue. So maybe better said by me, macro issues are going to drive the day. Now, the reality is that I don't think anyone has perfect certainty as to how these macro issues will play out over the next three, six, nine, or 12 months, because you have to have a crystal ball. And, and nobody does sitting on Wall Street or, or in Washington, D.C., or in the media capital in New York City. You, you just don't know how these things are going to play out, right? They're, they're the tome, like, what are the, what are the unknown, what are the knowable and unknowable unknowns? But what happened last year is that I said they broke to the upside. So fourth quarter, market sells off. First quarter, 12 months ago, the Fed says, hey, you know what? We'll play ball. We'll be more accommodative. 
market loves that. So that's the first thing that kind of spurs markets higher in the U.S. By the way, the economy was okay throughout the year. So you've got an okay market. You've got a Fed playing ball. And then you've got reasonably good optimism around a, a phase one trade deal around China and the U.S. Those three things happen and you get markets up 30%. Do I think those three things happen again and you get those same three things in 2020 or some other mix of those same three things? It's unlikely, but could you pull another inside straight? Yeah, but I don't think that should be your base case. I think your base case has to be that returns on stock in the U.S. and abroad over 2020 will be lower in 2020 than they were in 2019. Now, that's an easy prediction to make when they were up 30%. So if it winds up up 25%, that prediction is right and terribly uninsightful. But I think the, the, the baseline recommendation would be that stocks will be up mid to high single digits with a whole bunch of volatility around it. Why do you think that, though? So it's a mix of the economy still OK, right? So you have an economy that continues to, to move along at a let's just call 2 percent clip, whether it's two and a half or one and a half. Let's just round it off and say two and a half. Unemployment is really low. Consumer confidence is good. The consumer is what dictates the U.S. economy. And by the way, if you look year over year in terms of earnings growth, which is definitely a factor that impacts stock prices, last year, earnings per share growth was negative. And now I know nobody cares about that. Nobody thinks about that when the market was up 30%. But what it means is that next year, your comparisons versus 2019 should be pretty easy. So earnings numbers should look okay. If you have that and decent economic growth and the consumer is pretty healthy, it, sh- it should be a reasonably good year for stock. Here's what I think the question mark is. It's this notion of multiple expansion, which I don't know, is a fancy term for how much do people like stocks? How much are they willing to pay for stocks? 2019 with global markets now, not the U.S., of 27%. So why do stocks go up? It's some mix of earnings growth, the price people are willing to pay, which is multiple expansion, and the dividend. So the dividend is, call it 2 to 3% around the globe. Earnings per share growth was negative. So where did all of that appreciation or move up in the market come from? It came from multiple expansion. In other words, people willing to pay more for companies than they did 12 months before. I don't think that's going to happen again. If it does, that would give me a lot of pause. So, so why do I think rates of return are in the mid to high single digits, because I think earnings per share growth will be 2-3% around the globe. I think the dividend will still be 2-3%. That's, you know, kind of a given. And multiple expansion should be somewhat flat up 1% or 2%, which gets you to around 7 So I think that's a realistic expectation for 2020. Now, what that means is, <coughs> excuse me, if the market's up 15-20% this year, and this year could mean in a month, in a quarter, in six months, What we have to be very thoughtful about is, is that reflective of economic reality? If the market is up 15 or 20% because the economy is great, consumers are spending, and therefore earnings growth is enormous, everything's fine. In my view, if the market's up 15 or 20% and the dividend's still two or three and earnings per share growth is low single digits and the market's up a ton, then it's all coming from multiple expansion, which is the notion of what people are willing to pay for stocks. And I think we have to ask the question, are people being overly optimistic or we often talk about the notion of fear and greed in the market? That would tell me there's some degree of greed in the market, which which interestingly would make me cautious. I don't think I can find the firm hasn't found anything that's like the boogeyman out there. Here's the next shoe to drop. 
but you could get it if you just get wildly overvalued and then you have this not bubble because it's nowhere near that level but you have this place where you say i don't know why we were paying this much for these companies people talk about that in the tech sector today i'm generalizing where you'd say i can't justify it based on a full fundamental analysis the price of that stock therefore if someone else is going to pay a dollar more for it tomorrow it may not be worth what i bought for it today and i, I think that's the risk there and so we've got to be really thoughtful about risk managing client and investor assets coming off a year where people are up 30% in equity just to round off the number at a point in time where a lot of that was off multiple expansion. So that that's the connection, right? There's always a, is the market reflecting the economy? And sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes the market's good and the economy's bad. Sometimes the market's not as good as the economy, I think we we could wind up in a place where we say, yeah, the economy's okay, but the market's on fire. Is there a disconnect? And then what do we do about it? What else concerns you? What else concerns me? Um, I mean, you can be concerned about anything and everything. So we're talking on January 7th. And, you know, what concerned me a week or so ago was just what I was talking about. Are, are we getting to the stages where, you know, we've been having a good party. This has been, I've talked about this before, you've heard this everywhere, like the least love rally. And what that meant is that markets have gone up since 2008 and continually, including last year with the market up 30%, people were taking money out of the stock market to go to cash or bonds. I found that to be a good sign because that told me that there wasn't a ton of greed in the, in the market. What, I, what I'm starting to be worried about is it the opposite. Now, the Iran news from last week into this week has put a pause on that. So am I worried just generally about that sentiment? Yeah, of course. But what I say all the time is there, there's always something you think you can identify as the risk. Today sitting here, I, I think, you know, nine out of 10 of my clients would say good, bad, indifferent. Well, Iran could be a risk to the economy and to the stock market. Okay. A week or two ago, that may or may not have been on their list, but it probably wouldn't be number one. It might have been China. It might have been Brexit. It might have been geopolitical. It might have been the economy. It might have been the Fed. My point is there's always risks. There's the ones that you see and the ones that you don't. The point is there's always risk. I think you have to recognize that when you own stock, you could wake up not overnight, but you know, in a very relatively short period of time, in an extreme, down 30% on your money. Why? I don't know. But that's what happens when you own equity. Why will be really obvious when it happens. The problem will be it's already happened and therefore it's too late. So I think you have to say, all right, am I comfortable with a 30% downside risk on my stock at all points in time? Most people are not. If you're 25, 35, 45 years old and you're earning and you're not going to touch the money for decades, you should be able to live with that risk. You may not be comfortable with it, but financially you should be able to live with it. But most people aren't in that situation and most people aren't comfortable with it. So what do they do? They add in bonds and or cash to limit that downside risk on their entire portfolio, right? So I think that it it's back to that kind of finance 101. Am I comfortable with the level of risk I'm taking? If you were in 2019, you, you grabbed a ton of the upside, right? But if you were under allocated to risk because you got way too focused on well, the market's just come off a rally. I don't want to try and catch the market because it's already up 10 or 15%. There was another 15% to go. And what I said in the podcast in July was basically, you've got to be at the right risk level for you. You can't sit there and say, hey, the market's been up for 10 years. It's up 10 or 15% halfway through 2019. 
I'm not going to own stock. It's just, it's up too much. But if you should own stock, you, you kind of have to, because you, you might miss another 15% up. I wasn't predicting another 15% up, but you might miss it. And, and therefore that person did. And so I think it that really goes back to how much risk am I comfortable taking? What's the prudent amount of risk I'm willing to take? Where does that match with my return expectations? I've got to try and get there sooner rather than later. Now, it is also reasonable for someone who's spending down from their portfolio because they're retired over whatever the their situation might be to say, well, I've just had an enormous year. I'm concerned about the market for X or Y reason. Do I want to try and take some of my profits, not the time the market, but to prepare for the cash flows I need in my retirement or for the house I'm going to buy or for ongoing and living expenses over the next 6, 12, 18 months? If someone was to pre-take that money and move it out of stock and move it to bonds or cash and then spend down from that, that's an absolutely reasonable strategy as a way to take some profit, in fact, reduce the risk in, in, a, in a small way, but also give them some peace of mind. So I think it, it, it is back to, are you at the right investment strategy for you more than it is, what's the right investment strategy given where the Dow is today? Fair. What um, what final thoughts would you leave for our listeners before they hear us again six months from now who might, you know, be investors with you or might be thinking about establishing a plan or looking for greater financial advice that they aren't already receiving? So I, I, I you know, this is kind of be contradictory. I'm going to say, you know, don't listen to what anyone tells you about the next six or 12 months after I've just spent the last 13 months, 13 minutes telling you about the last six or 12 months. And I'm trying to tell you what's going to happen over the next six or 12 months. I, I would say. None of that's great advice. And and let me just throw out one example of a topic that came up on my phones and on my desk a lot last year that has since absolutely disappeared. And it's just an example of you think you know the risk, you think you know the boogeyman, and it may or may not be so. Everyone six months ago, give or take, wanted to have a conversation about the inverted yield curve. Prior to that, Nobody ever spoke to me about the inverted yield curve. My clients who were bond traders talked about the yield curve. It was weird when cabbies wanted to talk to me about the yield curve, right? That, that's when you say something's up. So the yield curve was very slightly inverted, and there were lots of articles written about what's this mean? It's a signal of a recession, yada, yada, yada. The world is ending. And what I said is it's a signal. There are lots of signals which create a whole picture about what's going on in the world. The yield curve today is no longer inverted. It looks, it's not steep, but it looks, let's just loosely call it normal. And between when the yield curve inverted and today, the world is still spinning on its axis and the economy is still healthy. That doesn't mean that that'll be true six or 12 months from now, but the point is the, the thing you see in the moment flashing red in front of you may or may not be what you should be thinking about. And so, you know, that inverted yield curve was sort of the buzzword of 2019. I don't know what it'll be of 2020, right? It, it might be GDP, it might be productivity growth, it might be population numbers, it might be Iran, who knows? But I think you don't want to get too caught up because I, I promise you there will always be a worry in markets. There has to be because if there isn't, capitalism kind of doesn't really work, right? You, you get a higher return on stock because there is an inherent risk in them. And you get less return when you put your money at the bank because there is virtually none or no risk in that. Now think about it if it didn't work that way. If you got as much return at the bank as you did from stock or more return on your cash than you did from stock, why would you ever own a stock? You wouldn't. 
by the way, why would you ever then open a business or start a business? Because if you said, I'm going to be the next, I don't know, Bill Gates and start Microsoft. And I told you, well, you could just make more money in the bank. You wouldn't go start a company. So, so capitalism is all about putting money at risk for the hope over time of higher return. Now, not everyone becomes Bill Gates, right? But th that's the nature of how the capitalistic system works. And so not to go off on a totally long rant there and quote Dennis Miller, but the, the, the notion of risk and return per unit of risk is important and fundamental to how our system works. So I think you have to say, okay, I'm willing to put some of that money to work for me, whether that, whether that is buying a property, whether that is investing in a business, whether it's owning a stock, that's also another way of investing in a business. The more risk you take, right, the entrepreneur who hangs out his shingle takes more risk, we all agree, but also has the likelihood of higher return. That's not for everybody. That's fine. The same way not everyone can have 100% of their money in stock. And so you got to just figure out that balance and and figure out how that works for you. And and a good financial advisor, and I, I hope I fit in that category, also thinks about what's the risk you're taking in your financial life outside of your investment assets? So did you hang out a shingle? Are you taking a whole lot of risk in your business? How do your investment assets or other assets offset those types of risks? It's all got to be thought about in a, in a very comprehensive manner. That wasn't your question about what's going to happen in 2020. But it, it's a way, I think, of framing the, the way of thinking about one's financial condition in 2020, but also as they think about 2025 and 2030. I think you tied the bow on good advice, so thank you. I'd say you did ultimately answer my question. I got 17 minutes, and then last time it was only 16, <laughs> so I think we're ahead of where we were. So the so big takeaway is you should expect volatility in 2020. It doesn't mean the world's going to end. Try not to get too focused on what the short term looks like. There will be lots of geopolitical stories whether it's China, the U.S., Iran, Fed, interest rates, those will create volatility in markets, and some will be real and some won't be. But the, I think the, the, the lesson from all of this is if you've got the investment strategy that you should have, you're going to be best positioned for how to get through 2020 and also be rightly positioned for 2021 or 2022. That all said, Amanda, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you throwing um, three or four questions at me and me droning on for 20 minutes. Anytime. <laughs> and to our listeners, any questions on this or any other topics, I can be reached at mark.penzner at bernstein.com or 212-969-6655. Make sure to like us on iTunes or wherever you catch this podcast. Until next time.